Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, a 21st century military structure for 21st century problems. Replace the geographic COCOMs with operational COCOMs uh, and have each operational COCOM focused on the main threats that we're facing today. And new small business contracting goals might not add up. The goal is ultimately that we're going to get that by 2025. The goal for SDBs would be 15%, which then if you add 15 plus 5 plus 3 plus 3, you've exceeded the small business statutory goal and you actually have a negative. So you're going to be taking away from some group in order to meet that goal. It's Tuesday, January 4th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The Biden administration is sticking with its choice to become the next leader of the National Institute of Standards and Technology. The Senate Commerce Committee approved the nomination of Lori LaCasio to become NIST director last July, but the Senate never voted on her confirmation. The administration sent the nomination again Tuesday. LaCasio has been at NIST before as acting principal deputy director and associate director for laboratory programs. The government's improper payment rates up for fiscal 2021, according to new data from the Office of Management and Budget. OMB says improper payments in 2021 were 7.2% of total outlays. The 2020 number was 5.6%. OMB says most of the increase comes from the unemployment insurance program to respond to the pandemic. You can read more about all these headlines and lots of other stories at fedscoop.com. IT leaders from the Energy Department, the IRS, the State Department, and the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center at the Pentagon are coming to the Government Forum 2022. It's Wednesday, January 19th at the Ritz-Carlton Pentagon City. You can read more about it and see the agenda in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The deputy commander of U.S. Space Command says he sees, quote, tremendous progress integrating his command into the space enterprise in the Defense Department. Lieutenant General John Shaw says his command's primary mission is, quote, to provide space capabilities down to the joint warfighters. Todd Harrison's director of the Aerospace Security Project, senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and writing about combatant commands in his Bad Ideas series, Todd, welcome. It's great to have you on the program. I want to be very clear. You are not suggesting overall that combatant commands are a bad idea. You write specifically about geographic combatant commands, and you cite your work does not include the functional commands. What's bad about the geographical commands? Why is that a bad idea? Welcome. Hey, thanks, Francis. Glad glad to be back on. Um, You know, I think that there's really, you know, uh, three reasons that the geographic combatant commands are just kind of an outdated, clunky idea that needs to be replaced. One is the strategic challenges that we face as a nation increasingly extend across the static boundaries that define the geographic COCOM's area of responsibility. Like, can you imagine a conflict with China that stayed confined to Indo-PACOM? Can you imagine a conflict with Russia that stayed confined to European command? It's just not the way it works anymore. Um, and so I, you know, I think that's one reason that we need to get beyond this, uh, you know, kind of AOR uh, construct. Another reason I think is that the COCOMs, as they have built up over the decades, they lead to a lot of excess demand for 
you know, this kind of routine presence operations. And, and we see a lot of low priority missions, uh, low priority relative to our defense strategy are increasingly, increasingly sucking up uh, a lot of the readiness of our force. And so you've seen former Secretary of Defense, uh, Esper has complained about this, and he kicked off a, uh, a zero-based review of the COCOMs to try to eliminate uh, some of this, you know, um, uh, dead wood, if you will, <laughs> that had built up. And uh, even more recently, you know, former Deputy Secretary Bob Work uh, wrote about this as well, that this excessive kind of uh, focus on presence and all of the geographic COCOMs is just breaking the force. Um, and and the, the third reason I, I write about um you know, it, it, in my uh, paper is I think the geographic COCOMs, uh, you know, really take over some of the roles that should be filled by the State Department when it comes to how the United States uh, interacts with other governments around the world. Uh, and it has led to an over-militarization of U.S. foreign policy. Uh, and part of the reason for this is the military has much larger resources to draw upon. The COCOMs themselves can pull from the military services uh, for personnel, for you know, equipment. Uh, and a lot of times other countries, the face of the US government that they primarily see uh, is a military face. And it really should be the State Department uh, that is leading a lot of our you know, diplomatic presence around the world. So. All right. I am grateful, as always, for the history lesson that you provide when you put out work like this. You write the National Security Act of 1947, formalized the unified combatant command system into law. Subsequent laws in 1958 and 86 amended and expanded the role of the geographic combatant commands. What does the right replacement look like in 2021 given the nature of the world and the threats against potentially the United States, the national security landscape that we live in now, Todd? I mean, I think there are a lot of different possible options and there's no perfect option, right? And there's always going to be seams and, and cracks in whatever construct you come up with. I think the key to a good organizational structure is understanding where do you put those seams. You want those seams to be in areas that are not that important and not that critical, all right? Uh, and right now, our seams are geographic, uh, and that's something I think is easily ex exploitable by adversaries. Uh, a smart thinking adversary can use that to their advantage. So, so uh, I, I think it's something that needs to be aligned with how other U.S. Um, you know departments and agencies uh, are organized. I think we need to have structural incentives that keep the military focused on its highest strategic priorities. And of course, there's always got to be clear lines of authorities. Uh, my you know favorite idea that I've seen out there is to replace the geographic COCOMs with operational COCOMs. Uh, and have each operational COCOM focused on the main threats that we're facing today. So have one focused on countering China, one on Russia, one on Iran, one on North Korea, uh, and then a fifth one focused on um, countering global terrorism. So it's basically the four plus one construct that we've seen in previous defense strategies. I would want to operationalize that in our COCOMs. Uh, and so the China focused COCOM, it would focus on countering China wherever that may take it, not limited by geographic boundaries. 
All right, you point out in this piece, it's true there are seams in that approach as well, such as countering contingencies that don't involve China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, global terrorism. When you give this example, we may not be well prepared for a war in Venezuela, but that's arguably an intentional feature of this approach, not a defect. How is that a feature and not a bug, Todd? Because, you know, a war in Venezuela is not a strategic priority for the United States. Uh, Full stop. (laughs) You know, that if we are constantly, you know, diverting resources to things that are not strategic priorities, then we are shortchanging our real priorities. All right. That's a pretty simple answer. Um, What's the potential appetite for making a change like this right now? (laughs) Uh, Probably not that high, Uh, (laughs) which is why it's easy for a a think tank scholar to write about. Uh, But, you know, you would be going against decades of, you know, institutions that have built up and are pretty powerful, uh, not just within the military, but on the Hill as well. Uh, and so, yeah, I think it would be, uh, you know, a very hard battle. Uh, and it's something that probably would have to be led from the outside, from Congress, uh, in order to force this kind of sweeping structural change on the military. All right. You write in this piece toward the very end, many, uh, by many accounts, the forces at a breaking point due in no small measure to the high operational tempo the geographic COCOMs are demanding. Given the threat landscape that we laid out there, China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, global terrorism how would structuring restructuring the cocoms change the tempo the operational tempo that you allude to because the threat would still be the same the threat would be the same but we could get rid of all of these lower priority missions right uh and, and especially a lot of these presence missions where you've got the cocoms just accustomed to demanding a certain level of forces Uh, from the services at all times. And I think a lot of it would be a reduction in in what we're doing in the Middle East and CENTCOM. If you eliminate CENTCOM uh, and instead have a command, an operational command focused on Iran, it's going to be a very different force structure and a very different demand for forces uh, than what we see today. Uh, it'll be much smaller, much more focused. Uh, and so that's where I think we can get ourselves away from this op tempo problem that really has been overstretching the force for too long. And then the reason that you couldn't turn that op tempo down under the structure that we have now is because that's just kind of the nature of things. Each of those commands has to, I mean, I, for lack of a better term, justify its own existence and, and do what they've exactly. continued to do. Is that, am I on the right track? Exactly. You can't expect the geographic commands today to do this because they're not incentivized to do it. You know, if you're the Southcom commander, <laughs> you know, your whole job is to think about, you know, contingencies uh, involving, you know, South America, right? And so it, you're not doing your job if you aren't thinking about those things and requesting forces uh, and being prepared for them. But at the end of the day, you know, that's not a strategic priority for the United States. That's not what our strategy says we should be focused on. So we should not be putting resources towards those activities. Bad idea. Geographic combatant commands by Todd Harrison. I love the bad ideas series every year. I had Bob Hale on before the holidays talking about his piece about um, the September 30 uh, end date for the uh, fiscal year, and uh, I, I love hearing these ideas every year and thinking about possible solutions. It's great to talk to you, Todd. 
Uh, it's always a pleasure. You can find a link to Todd's piece on Combatant Commands in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop Podcast. February 8th is the Delivering Better Outcomes Through Automation event FedScoop is putting on. It's at the Ritz-Carlton West End in D.C. from 8.30 to 3. You can read more about it and register through the link in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. Another round of changes is coming to the CIO-SP4 contract from the National Institutes of Health, NITAC. Companies are standing by, too, for the new RFP for the General Services Administration's Polaris contract. Emily Murphy's former administrator of the General Services Administration. Emily, welcome. It's good to talk to you again. Okay, what's the landscape look like, in your view, for both people in government who are procurement and IT acquisition officials and for people in companies who want to do business with those folks? Welcome. Well, Happy New Year, Francis, and thank you. Um, if you'd asked me this question at the end of November, my answer would be very different than it is today, which is, and that's because December 2nd, the Biden administration issued an executive order changing how we're going to goal for small business goals going forward. And I don't know how much attention you paid to this, but currently the goals are 5% for small disadvantaged businesses, 5% for women-owned small businesses, 3% for service-stable veterans, 3% for hub-zone businesses, for an overall goal of 23%. So 16% spoken for, for in the subcategory, 7% isn't. The executive order changed that, and it said we're going to have, in 22, so this year, a goal of 11% for small disadvantaged businesses and keep the remaining socioeconomic goals. But when you do that, instead of having a 7% sort of space that's small business-friendly, for any of those categories of small businesses or small businesses don't, don't fit into one of the categories, you're left with, uh, I think, just a percent that's available. And the goal is ultimately that we're going to get that there, by 2025, the goal for SDBs would be 15%, which then if you add 15 plus 5 plus 3 plus 3, you've exceeded the small business statutory goal and you actually have a negative. So you're going to be taking away from some group in order to meet that goal. Uh, so th if I were a business right now looking at something like Polaris, which has categories carved out for women-owned small businesses, for service-able veteran-owned small businesses, for hub-zone businesses, for the first time ever in some of these cases that we've got categories reserved for them, the question then becomes how much are those going, going to get used? And how much is the overall small business contract going to be used? Or are contract vehicles like STARS-3 going to become the easy button for meeting that new goal so the the there's a lot of numbers there and i'm not the best math guy in the world so you made one reference there that i'm curious about and that is that with the way the numbers stacked up you said that s some of those numbers were going to have to come from another group and I, I wonder if the other group that the administration intends those to come from is the broader pool of contractors the the larger primes that have traditionally done more business with the government it strikes me that's what the administration's going for and i wonder why in your view that wouldn't work emily so it's always there's always been a huge pressure or push to change the small business goal and raise the overall small business goal but if you're telling contracting officers that the goal is 23% to small businesses and 11 to 15% of the, uh, of yeah, that 23 has to be made up by SDBs. The 
when you're looking at where to take something and where to recategorize it, work that's suitable for a word to small business is the first place you're going to go. It's of the scope and size that's easy to do. Some of it may come from the larger businesses, but I, I was surprised that the overall goal wasn't raised as part of the, this initiative to increase the SDB, that there wasn't an attempt to keep that space in there. And I think it ultimately may hurt the SDB firms because as they outgrow, and you know, many of them are going to get contracts as 8As, as they outgrow their 8A status, it doesn't leave them a whole lot of space to inhabit. Um, and, you know, and it puts them really into a, a direct set of competition after being in a space where the a sole source is the preferred form of award. All right. Is there a way to get to what the administration intends to meet the spirit of that executive order in a way that you think will be more conducive to all of the groups and less punitive to some of the groups that you're pointing to there? I think one of the things that you'll see is an attempt to find companies that are SDBs and women-owned and hub-zone and service so unicorn companies that check all the boxes. And so they can take credit for those. I do think there'll be some effort to take you know, to expand what is available for small businesses. I think you'll see a lot more teaming between small businesses, which you know, gets into some of the issues that CIOSP4 was having with their men or protege arrangements and how you're going to treat joint ventures between companies. So I think that you'll see more of that so that you'll see more collaboration in there. But I think that there are going to be some un unintended consequences and it may end up hurting you know, traditional small businesses, women-owned small businesses, service-able veteran-owned small businesses, um, as they're as they're themselves trying to compete in a pretty tight marketplace. All right, what else is on the landscape? As I'm, I just mentioned two of the big ones at the beginning of this conversation, Emily CIOSP four and Polaris, and you've touched on both of those. But there's a lot of other activity that people should pay attention to. I imagine as the year begins, uh, there is, and I think that when you look at last year's cyber executive orders and the work around supply chain, the recent you know, challenges we found, I think we're going to, I'm looking to see how that plays out in contracting and where that gets incorporated and where the funding comes from for those mandates. Now, are agencies going to establish their own systems for, uh, to, for monitoring this? Are they going to push it down to the contractor? Uh, so I think that that's going to be a fascinating one to see play out. I also think the other part that it, it's, that's interesting to me is the work on category management, the executive order, uh, the, the January, sorry, December 2nd executive order, and where they said that they're going to give credit for uh, tier two category management to awards that are made full and open competition to categories of small business, not small businesses themselves, but any subcategory of small business, which I think is a really fascinating idea and actually a really well, you know, good idea in terms of helping contracting officers reconcile how those goals fit together, how category management, small business goals fit together. I am surprised they didn't include just small business in that goal as well. The, I, the whole idea, though, of that uh, mentioning of category management in the executive order, I think, was important because it codifies the idea that category management is not going away. It, ca it codifies the concept that it's not just something the last administration did or the administration before that. And I know it kind of wound up at the in the last in the second term of the Obama administration. You and your colleagues continued it in the Trump administration, and it's really here to stay. And I think there's been some maybe at the agency level some resistance to the idea because people like to have their own little things and 
uh, it was it was striking to me that that the Biden administration is saying, no, this is a thing and we want to continue to leverage this power the way we've been talking about it for a long time. I think if you actually go back to the Bush administration uh, and the strategic sourcing initiative there, that's where you sort of find the root of that category management. And Mary Davey ran that for GSA you know, 15, 17 years ago. So if you think about the people who were the champions of it and who really got the data and got it running and moving and turned it into category management, people like Leslie Field, and all of those people are still there and still, I mean, they've got great insight into the federal procurement marketplace and they're, and looking across the government. So to me, it wasn't surprising to see that category management is going to continue. I actually just like that they're reconciling it, really taking a step to make it clear that category management and small business play together rather than being um, in in competition for procurement dollars. Um, since we're doing shout outs, apparently, Emily, I will note that the last time I talked to Joe Jordan, he pointed out that Leslie Field has been the administrator of federal procurement policy longer than anybody else in history. If you add up all of her acting gigs in between confirmed OFPP administrators. So just a couple more shout outs there. Emily Murphy, it's great to talk to you. Happy New Year. Thanks for coming on today. Happy New Year, Francis. Thank you. You can read more about the big contracts coming up for bid in today's show notes, The Daily School podcast.com the daily scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms if you've already rated the show on your platform of choice thanks for doing that high ratings and good reviews of the show help more people find it the daily scoop podcast is a production of the scoop news group in washington dc james mahoney helps me put the show together and the entire scoop news group team contributes wednesday's show debuts tomorrow afternoon until then i'm the host of the daily scoop podcast francis rose thanks very much for listening 